So I played my first 18-hole round of golf of 2023 on British shores yesterday. Yeah, I've got a bone to pick with you about that, but I will at least let you outline said 18 holes first. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing. So I played with um, well Dan from here. Um, I haven't played golf with Dan for ages. And then reacquainted myself with Mark Townsend off of Golf Monthly, once of NTG, now of Golf Monthly, because uh, we're all friends here in the golf industry. And also played with golf industry legend Dave McCarthy, once of True Temper, now retired, uh, self-styled, nicest man in golf. Uh, and it was absolutely epic. Dave's moved up to near Seton and he's joined after 49 years at Moortown. Um, and Mark and I have been talking about trying to get a game in for ages. Uh, I don't know if you acknowledged the weather yesterday, but it was like a perfect sort of um, late winter, early spring day, beautiful blue skies, seven mile an hour wind, about eight or nine degrees. Uh, and seating crew is just epic. You've been to my spiritual home without me. I grew up four miles from that course. I, cannot, I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed, Tom. Well, you won't have to ask twice to get me to go back again. Yeah, it was um, it was one of those days where you, you sort of find yourself inquiring about country membership at the at the end of the round. Um, I think I'm right in saying Seton's the only link source in Yorkshire. Cleveland's in Teesside, right? No, other way around. Um, other way around. Okay. Yeah, Seek, so Seton Crew is like Durham um, and Cleveland is Yorkshire. So Cleveland's the only links in Yorkshire. Okay, well, I'm going to I'll rephrase that then and say that it's it's one of very few links courses that are sort of an hour or just under an hour from my house. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's like a proper championship golf course. Like normally when you go to these sort of less heralded links courses, you come back and you're talking about red and greens and rumpled fairways and quirky holes. It's not like that there at all. It's like a proper mini Muirfield sort of thing. Like it just all every hole sort of stretches out in front of you. It's like incredibly well bunkered. Um, the the sort of the basic architecture of it is is championship golf, um, and it's a fascinating place. Like it's got they've got 22 holes. Um, I think they've got Mackenzie Ebert in to try and come up with a um, an official routing because at the moment there's there's technically five different golf courses you can play. So there's umpteen different sets of tees, with, all of which have got different names, um, which is not great in theory, but I think leaves you a bit puzzled and a bit kind of worried that you haven't played the the very best routing um and they've spent a lot of money on it in the last few years taking out lots of gorse it's improved it immeasurably by all accounts it was just mint steve like the greens were uh, pure the the turf and everything was just it was just brilliant so much space yeah the uh greenkeeper there um head greenkeeper tom coulson's a local lad he grew up at cleveland and he was deputy at royal st george's um, and he came he's he came there uh, about two weeks before lockdown and he's basically transformed the place. I mean, you know, I love Seton Crew. It's an absolutely amazing course, but I don't think the club will mind me saying they they were not in a good space three or four years ago. Um, and they've just completely transformed it. I mean, the, the surfaces there are just incredible. I mean, like I mean, like you say, like championship some of the surrounds on greens, the fringes, like open quality stuff, um, just out of this world and still remarkably cheap if you get it at the right time. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, they, they had, we went in to pay and they had us um, complimentary in the end. So thanks to Martin Stubbins, their pro who joined them from Rockcliffe um, for comping our round. But 
you won't struggle to get me back, Steve. Well, it's, it's epic. It's absolutely epic. Um, anyway, so today it, we're, as ever, sponsored by TaylorMade, uh, who have kindly agreed to be associated with the From the Clubhouse podcast. I've just come off a podcast, actually, about um, TaylorMade's new tour response golf ball. Um, so anybody who is a voracious consumer of uh, podcasts, I suggest you go and listen to that. Um, it's about an hour's worth of a sort of deep dive into into the new tour response ball um, and this kind of advent of visual technology in golf balls where previously things like uh, colours or markations or primarily lines that you would draw on your golf ball by hand are now part of the sort of technology story. Um, I won't spoil it too much, but there's some absolutely bonkers stats. Here's a question for you, uh, Steve. How? What percentage of TaylorMade's golf ball sales last year, do you think, were for white golf balls? And by white, I mean ones that were just white with nothing on. Hmm. I think it's still going to be the vast quantity because um, the response was was sort of new last year, wasn't it? So that'll obviously take a bit of time to get into going. Obviously, the old green and orange balls, I don't know what TaylorMade do there, but um, I'm going to say 97%. Uh, how wrong you are and how wrong I would have been if asked the same question. 50. 50-50. Wow. Bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because I, I, you would just, I mean, I like a yellow ball, actually. Um, I think it, I think it, um, it goes, it, well, where I hit the golf ball anyway, it certainly shows up a bit better at a different colour ball. But yeah, 50-50. Well, I've well, learned something. So, Another thing discussed is why is yellow the go-to alternative from white? And it's because it is the colour that is closest to white in terms of being easy, easiest to spot. So anyway, you can get all that and more on our um, All The Gear podcast about the TaylorMade tour response and golf balls in general. It's pretty good stuff. Has uh, your new driver got here yet? I am like a kid at Christmas waiting for it. Um, what are you actually waiting for? What have you got on order? Stealth 2, standard head. Uh, ten and a half degree loft, which has been lofted up to twelve. Yeah. Um, even flow riptide shaft, fifty gram regular, half an inch shorter um, than standard. Um, I really do like a shorter shaft actually. Um, and I, I think it'd just be a standard golf pride grip, but I might go undersize at some point because I've got quite small hands and. Since I've gone undersize on my uh, current driver, I've noticed a definite shift in performance. So I think that is, uh, I'm actually genuinely looking forward to hearing about how you get on with it. Um, I've tested all of that uh, TaylorMade Stealth 2 stuff, the Stealth 2, the High Draw and um, the other one. And uh, like it performed unbelievably well for me in drive ball testing and on course testing. But the proof is in the pudding, isn't it, in terms of a long a long term test. So it'd be interesting to see as the season progresses how, how you get on with that. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm pretty excited about it, mainly because I don't do very well in um in fittings. I usually underperform actually. Um okay. for a variety for a variety of reasons. But 
I was as good with that driver in a fitting environment as I have with any I've had. So, um, and as I say, you know, with a lofted up driver with a short shaft, I got some significant gains on my current driver. Um, the hope would be then we, when we actually get out onto the course, you know, into the summer, I play at Strensel. It's pretty firm running in July and August. Um, I could, I could see some bombs maybe. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, iGolfer. The independent golfer, yes. Uh, I'm pleased we're going to do this. So we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about uh, a pod about equal access to tee times at weekends for female golfers. Um, but waiting for a special guest for that podcast to be available. So with a fair breeze, that'll be next week. Um, so we've decided to talk about iGolfer today. Um, I'm pleased we're going to do it because I think we've done a lot of WHS. I think iGolfer is kind of intrinsically linked to WHS. I think the two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, I think there's a lot of scepticism about the scheme. I think there's been a lot of concern about the scheme, what it would mean for the future of golf club memberships. I think it's been a long time coming um, and the impact has been sort of looming over the industry and golf clubs up and down the country for a number of years. Um, I think that the rollout of it has been interesting and how England golf have gone about doing that. Uh, I think the provenance of the scheme in the first place is sort of relatively misunderstood. Um, so I think we can do it in quite a lot of detail. I think we can do it in quite a orderly fashion from its conception to where we are with it now. And then obviously discuss what we think it might mean um, for the future of, of golf and how it's taken um, by different types of golfer. Um, so you've got quite a bit of background on um, iGolfer. You've written about it a lot over the years since it was brought in. Um, you've kind of updated that knowledge. You've spoken to England Golf this week um, ahead of this podcast. Um, so we shouldn't have too many gaps in knowledge to fill in. So if we could just begin at the beginning, I guess, and talk about when it started and why it started, that would be interesting to me, I think, to refresh my memory and, and hopefully interesting to the listener. Uh, so iGolf is, uh, for those who've never heard of it before, um, if you've been under that rock, I'll help you get out for it. Uh, it's a subscription service um, and it offers non-club members a handicap, an official world system, a world handicap system mark. It costs about £44 a year now, I think. It used to be 40 so I think it's gone up slightly. But it's essentially a subscription service giving people who are not members of golf clubs a handicap. Now, this first um, was mooted, I think, back in 2019, um, and it caused an absolute kerfuffle. Um, there was uh, a lot of opposition to it, um, particularly from um, some quite sizable counties. Um, and the main opposition was that people thought that um, it would cannibalise golf club membership, uh, that people would say, well, what's the point of uh, me paying X amount of pounds at, at my golf club when I can basically leave and go and have a handicap for 40 quid um, and and there was a, there was a lot of kerfuffle about it i mean i you know it's it's a funny word to use that but but there there was out there was an outcry um so much so that um the scheme was essentially shelved um back in i think sort of the, the early part of 2020 and then it arose again um at the back end of of, of sort of 2020 back end of 2020 and then into early 2021 um, and what appears to have been the catalyst for what became iGolf is the World Handicap System. 
Um, so the RNA, I'm, I'm not telling any secrets here, the RNA and the USGA, but the RNA in particular, um, have a stated aim, which is to make handicaps as available as possible to as many people as possible. Now, obviously, one of the ways you can do that is you take handicapping outside of the realms of golf clubs where it was traditionally there you know you joined a golf club to play in competitions and have a handicap you take it out of the realm and you offer it you offer it to everybody and you offer it through um an independent golfer scheme so the rna i think were very 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 keen on independent golfer schemes and they essentially said to england golf we quite like you to do this and england golf um, were of the opinion um that there was a possibility that if they didn't do it then a third party might come in on top of them and offer it. Now, uh, England Golf, as I'm sure you're aware, have the license for World Handicap System in the in England. And I think all of the home unions do in their respective unions under Congo hold the license overall. I think that's right. Um, and that changed the mind of some of the counties, I believe, in the sense that they thought, well, if, if this is going to happen, then it would be better if it was under the auspices of England Golf. So. Yeah, it came. Can I, it, can I just stop you there, Steve? Um, I just want to try and do it, do things a bit slower. Um, so the, the 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 starting point for this, in terms of the date the actual scheme began, when was that? When did the scheme come in? July 2022. Right. Okay. So it's it's no no it, July no July 2022. I think I might be wrong. I'm wrong there. It's July 2021. I yeah, think. that's that's right. Yeah. Um, but this this has been such a long time coming and this is one of the things i kind of want to get across so we i've been in the golf industry for 10 years um and i've been through three different chief execs in golf so um there's jeremy Tomlinson now before him there was nick pink and before him there was a guy called david joy and david joy was uh tried unbelievably hard to get this exact kind of scheme through during his tenure. So this is going back to 2014, 2015, and it was always met by significant resistance from um, the county unions. And I think it's probably worth just explaining to uh, the listener a little bit about the governance of England Golf without wanting to get too technical about it. Um, but England Golf effectively has um, 70 um, voting members um, and it, they are, um, they effectively run England golf. So it's impossible for England golf to change anything constitutional without um, a unanimous vote from those county members. So a lot of the job of the chief execs prior to Jeremy was to lobby county unions to try and get this change through. N none was successful because the county unions were worried about the impact of the scheme on golf clubs, right? Um, and, and so what happened then was uh, when it became clear that um, a scheme of this kind was going to have to happen in some fashion or another, I think uh, the argument uh, with the counties essentially ended at that point. And then England golf, um, their, their attitude to clubs was essentially you can engage with the scheme if you want. You can get you can engage with it to the point that you want to. You, yeah. you can you so can you can ignore it or you can even have eye golfers playing in club competitions if you want to. I mean, the, the, the it was that wide, basically. So let's just deal with that aspect of it then. So England Golf have, have had it in their minds that an independent golfer scheme is the right direction to go in. Um, 
they've unsuccessfully managed to get that through due to their own governance and their own county members being opposed to it. So there's come a point in early 2021 where the RNA have basically said to uh, England Golf and other administrators of the game uh, at country level that if you don't if you if you don't get this scheme through, then we are going to implement the scheme directly and we'll use a third party company, not not yourselves in the traditional Congo sense to administer the scheme. Right. So that's the sort of next step. Yeah, so I think how it was, I think Jeremy talked about this, Jeremy Tomlinson, England Golf's chief executive, talked about this on, I think it was on a Golf Club Managers Association um, webinar, um, which I happened to be listening to. And I'm paraphrasing here now, but but I I, I think that the, um, I think that how it was described was um, that a third, uh, you know, there was the possibility, perhaps, that a third party could come in and do it. Yeah. So I think that is an important sort of point of clarification. I think, to their credit, that England Golf have sort of owned owned it, um, and it's been it's very much viewed in the eyes of the golfer as an England Golf scheme. I mean, why wouldn't it be? We're all using an England Golf app. Yeah, but I found the, truth- the quote, Tom. I found the quote. Yeah. Um, so, so Jeremy. So basically, he was asked about the origins of the scheme. He said he'd received a call from Martin Slumbers, who's the RNA chief executive, and the chief development officer Phil Anderton, who told him that their strategy included not only connecting with as many golfers as possible, but the desire to provide them with handicaps, which is basically what we've said. And uh, Jeremy told the call. If we didn't retain our position as the single authority for handicapping, then invariably a commercial partner of the RNA may well have come into England and taken up that mantle. So I think I think that's a really important point to clarify. Um, so we're not I'm not into, I'm not going into bat for England golf at all, but I think that that is I think they've really owned that. Um, as in they've they've sort of listened to what the RNA have had to say. They've obviously tried to get a similar scheme off them off the ground themselves previously. Um, but it would have been very easy for the chief exec of England Golf, be that Jeremy or someone else, to kind of throw their hands in the air, know that it wasn't going to be popular and say, well, it's not our decision, it's someone else's decision. Um, and they, that's not what they've done. They've they've properly owned owned the rollout of it and taken the, the grief that's come with that. Um, and I think the point that Jeremy makes in that quote is 100% correct, as in we want the administrators of the handicap to be a not-for-profit organisation that is funded by the golfer um, who are running handicaps for the sake of, for the sake of golf and for the sake of running handicaps and no other uh, and no other reason. Um, so I think I think that is I would tip my cap to England Golf for for both of those things, um, both for the the way they've owned the way they've owned the rollout and the reason that they've wanted to own the rollout, I think both of those things are quite correct. Um, so we have we now have the independent golfer scheme, uh, and I know you talked about this earlier, but let's just let's just go over it again. So the scheme is now live; it's the middle of 2021. So what what isn't isn't available, and to whom now that iGolfers uh, around? Sorry, Tom. You're just gonna. Are you just? Are you just gonna have to clarify that question for me? You just broke up a little bit so, on my end. So, so who can join? So, can I'm okay. a member. Of, I'm a member of a golf club. So, can I join? 
Yes, but there's a waiting limit. So so basically, um, if you're a non-member of a golf club, you can just join. Um, you pay your £44. Um, you get given a, a membership number, presumably. Um, and, you know, with submission of cards, obviously, you can gain a World Handicap System index. Um, if you're a member of a golf club and you leave with the intention of joining um, the iGolf scheme, then you have to be outside of your membership for a minimum of six months before you can join the iGolf subscription. Right. Um, and what what does it get you? So I think you said earlier it gets you a handicap and it gets you some golf insurance. It gets you insurance, yeah. And it gets you yeah. a handicap, yeah. Um, so why? So for years and years and years, there's been lots and lots of places where um, you can get a way of tracking your progress or a handicap in inverted commas. So I'm thinking about things like 18 birdies or golf shake back in the day. Um, so scoring apps, basically, um, where I can keep my score and it will spit out um, an idea about what my what my index is, I guess, to use sort of more modern parlance. Um, so given that those sorts of things have been around for ages um, for the non-club member to sort of track their playing progress, why is why are golf clubs, why have county unions been so opposed to this scheme in, um, in the past or why are they worried about it? Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, to look at it from a golfer's point of view, the handicap's official. Um, so th th those schemes you were talking about, I think they may be accepted by some golf clubs. They may be not, but this isn't this was an, this is an official handicap that's being offered, which I think does make a difference compared to say some some other schemes that are being offered. Um, I believe that there were there were there are a number of things. Um, number one, there was a fear that um, it would be very easy for golfers who were wavering um, to then say, right, I'm going to leave golf club membership. Perhaps I'm not using it, but I don't have to give up what I've got because I can join iGolf for for £44. So there was definitely a fear among some golf clubs that it would cannibalise membership. Now, we'll get on to some of the figures later on. I know there are some exceptional circumstances here, but that, that hasn't happened. It hasn't happened at all. Um, secondly, I think there is a belief among club members in particular, and maybe some parts of golf hierarchy, that a handicap is one of the privileges of being a member of a club, that that, it sh that you should have to be a member of a club to have a handicap, to have that right to play in competitions. There's, def there's definitely a little bit of that. And thirdly, if you're looking at the iGolfers themselves, there was a charge among some clubs and in some sectors of the industry that this will this will make a mockery of open competitions because there's no way of checking on an iGolfer's handicap to our satisfaction and we'll be inundated with players that have handicaps that don't reflect their true ability. So I think they were a trio of the of, of the main concerns. Now we can talk about all of them i suppose later on but i think they were the three main things um i think we should get into it now so i guess to we you also need to put this in the context of time right yeah so um pre-covid um and i guess yeah pre-covid when this was kind of being muted for many years golf club membership was in decline um and so the, the, there was a big resistance, wasn't there? Because people were saying, well, look, we're losing members hand over fist anyway. Um, we're losing members to flexible membership schemes. We, people are drifting away, from, drifting away from the game. And now, as the game's governing body, you're telling us that you're going to 
it was kind of like viewed as the final nail in the coffin almost wasn't it as in it was um a time when clubs felt they needed a leg up from um their the, the governors of the game they were actually getting the opposite and they they were they felt like they were working against each other um we've now had this sort of post covid boom in participation um and I guess that sort of helped probably drive numbers of eye golfers who are newer to the game and want a way of tracking their progress. I think it's yeah. worth I think it's worth exploring some of the kind of logic of that counter argument presented by clubs and county unions. So, to what extent do you think uh, a, a handicap? I don't want to put you on the spot because I realise it's a delicate issue, but. To what extent do you think, as a club golfer, a handicap is one of the reasons that you're a member of the golf club? Like how high up your list would it be? I mean, I think it's an individual thing. Um, I, it's not massively high up my list, but then competition play is. Yeah. Um, so and the and the two go in tandem, don't they? I mean, they're separate, but but you can't necessarily play in an official club competition without a handicap, can you? So um, it is important, but you know, it's not. It's not the main driver um, for me joining a golf club. I mean, or staying at a golf club, as obviously I've done this year. You know, it's about the course. It's about the environment. It's about the people. It's about um, the practice facilities, the social stuff. And then maybe handicaps will come in there afterwards. I mean, it's. I mean, I've had one for so long, Tom, that it's basically I don't think about it too much anymore, if that makes sense. But but it is. But it's not the primary reason I'm at a golf club. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that as well. I mean, you I think the the point you make about competition play is important because the fact that you can have a a handicap that enables you to enter competitions, be it open competitions or potentially club competitions in the future, you can see how that long term may erode away at golf club members. Um but I think to say that one of the primary reasons that people I remember the golf club is to have a handicap. I don't think that's quite correct. I mean, well, it's just not true um, because yeah. I think that if you if you think about the number of people who play in comps, I'm going to generalise a little bit here, so bear with me, listeners. But but yeah. I think it's worth making this point. It's usually you know of your core golf club, it's usually the same kinds of people who are teeing up in the competitions week after week because they play golf partly. And, or, or primarily in some cases because they want to be competitive but they represent if you think about the number of people who can play in comps they represent not a massive proportion of the club yeah. you know at clubs that i've been at in the past you know we might have had 500 members and 250 people on the handicap list well there's half the club that don't have a handicap yeah. uh, or didn't have a handicap because they didn't want to play in competitions back then and to play in competitions you had to have a handicap so um i, I think the idea that uh it's, it's a very easy narrative for me to say because i i like playing in competitions and competition golf is a big part of what i'm about it's a big part of what you're about but we tend to forget then that it's actually not a massive part of what a lot of other people are about and i think where um having a handicap but not playing in competitions or having an eye golf handicap is that some people want to measure themselves in different ways, don't they? You know, you, I might want to measure myself just against the group that I'm playing. in. I might never, ever pay a fiver to enter a competition, but I just want a way of, me way of measuring, you know, am I better than Tom at golf? So I think, I think, yeah, I think the, the point about percent 
competitions is, is the most important thing there. And um, like if you if you think what's happening in a golf club Monday to Friday, then it's primarily older members who are meeting up for camaraderie, for companionship, um, get their exercise, to get their fresh air. Um, and a lot of these people they had a couple of laps at the end of the year. Um, because they're not they're not playing to monitor their progress as a golfer. They're playing because they want to spend time with their friends in the fresh air. Yeah. Um, and the golf the golf club happens to be where they do it. Um so I think to say that having a handicap is you know particularly high up the list of the vast majority of golfers is is not valid. But I do think there is some truth in that um there could be an erosion of that of club membership linked to that which is the comp- competitive point that you make which i think is a good one and, and so, i think what sorry tom i think what world handicap has done what whs has done is it's it's taken away a lot of that uh, now people will argue with me here about um you know people who subsequently enter competitions but you know the idea that your handicap could be inact active or inactive depending on how many tournaments you played you know was distressing for some people um and now surely whs one of its positive things and i golf as a consequence of that is that your handicap is there basically for the entirety of your life as a golfer it doesn't disappear now how you choose to engage with that is up to you but the principle of everyone having a handicap is there now isn't it whereas it wasn't necessarily under the old schemes yeah um and that i guess that sort of takes us into the the next point which you touched upon is which golf clubs are worried about is lots and lots of people with invalid handicaps because they weren't subject to the same scrutiny as an independent golfer as they would be a member of a golf club they're kind of i guess the the independent golfer was on his viewed as someone who is kind of out of control and under no one's jurisdiction um and therefore- but it's a, yeah but it's a complete myth it's just a myth um so England Golf have an iGolf Handicap Committee, um, and it's got some pretty hefty people on it in terms of the hierarchy in England Golf. Um, I mean, for example, the head of handicapping and course rating is on that panel, right? Um, and they're pretty stringent in the way that they check scores. They're very, they're very stringent. I've seen how they do it, and I've seen some of the things they do um in questioning uh eye golfers who perhaps haven't um lived up to some of the standards they're expected to and i think you could argue actually that the eye goal that the 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 kind of um what's the word i'm looking for the kind of scrutiny that an eye golfer comes under is probably just as much if not more than you'd get from your average club handicap committee because you know the the spotlight is there so much because of the pedigree of the people who are checking scores who are looking at scores who understand the whs portal to such an extent that when red flags do come up they can see them very very quickly you know i mean I, i'm not casting aspersions on handicap committees at all here but i would imagine that the level of knowledge does vary depending on whether volunteers are really established or whether they're brand new so so i think the idea that eye golfers are somehow rogue and that their handicaps are just flowing around and that they can basically put any score they like in and then turn up and dominate um competitions i, I think it's just untrue frankly that is though the attitude that pervades isn't it i think you were at a regional get together this week um and even a show of hands about clubs that are allowing i to club competitions did not yield particularly high numbers 
No, there was, um, I mean, there was a significant proportion of shaking of heads in the room. Not everyone, not everyone, but I, I certainly don't. I mean, can you think of a golf club that you know in our region that's engaging with eye golfers? There, there are some that do it, but I, 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 I would hazard a guess that currently um, a significant proportion are not. Which, and the, and this point was made at the. Um, at the meeting, and I think it's an interesting one, um, because there's been this resistance to eye golfers. I, I think some golf clubs and, and the handicap advisors who were there pointed this out. Some golf clubs are missing out on revenue opportunities by doing that, by basically turning their nose up and saying, we don't want you playing in our open competitions, for example. It's a really interesting uh, scenario, which like hit me like a hammer. And I'd never thought about it. And I thought, you know what? It's so deceptively simple all golf clubs that ran open competitions could essentially do it if they had enough eye golfers wanting to apply. And the idea is that you just in your terms and competition, if you don't necessarily want an eye golfer to be in your main open competition prizes, set up a division, have an eye golfer division within your open. Yeah. I mean, it hit me like, it hit me like a hammer that, I mean, but I think some of the things that we're talking about here that golf clubs are are concerned about, and the reason I bring that example up can be dealt with in terms of competitions. If golf club committees knew how to use the power that they've got in terms of competition. Yeah. uh, You do go all, you go all Northeast when you get across, you really do. The, um, uh, I think the the important thing there is, is it's not binary, is it? That's, that's the thing. Golf is nothing if it isn't slow to move. Um, so I golfer is here and it's it's kind of here to stay. Um, so golf clubs can resist because they don't think their members will like it or they're worried about the um, the, the, the legitimacy of I golfer handicaps. But the fact of the matter is sooner rather than later, they will f- have to find a way of uh, engaging with these people because it will come down to commercials also, as almost everything does. Um, so I think two two things on that topic. One one is we run a amateur golf tour, um, which and we allow eye golfers to enter alongside uh, club members, or traditional club members. I think for about five percent of our eight thousand entries are eye golfers, um, and we work with England Golf on that scheme. Um, and I think that we we apply some um, due diligence to the, the winners. So if someone wins a competition, we will go and look and investigate the legitimacy of their handicap. Um, but we'll do that for club members as well um, by making a call to a competition or to a secretary. Um, so I think that, that that kind of thing is available to golf clubs. The other thing I would say is that you, you talk about divisions for iGolfers. To me, that sort of has a slightly apartheid feel to it. Um, but I, I would say that what you can do is you could put some parameters around um, how many cards an iGolf has submitted. So what we know about WHS is that the more rounds you submit, the more accurate a reflection of your playing ability is. And I think that is fair enough that if someone has signed up to an iGolfer scheme by submitting three cards to get going, and then they're entering a club competition of a very inflated handicap, which it may well be if they've only just got that um, handicap, then why not say, look, if if you're going to enter a competition, you have to have submitted 20 cards. Um, I know at my club that that is certainly how um, entry to uh, knockouts is being entered, that you can't enter a knockout if you haven't submitted a certain number of WHS cards in the year. And that applies to club members as much as it does to independent golfers. Yeah. And so I think that club, I think clubs are starting to wake up to this now. 
Um, I don't think all of them are necessarily doing it perhaps in the right way. I've seen some examples that um, readers have sent me recently, which uh, made my eyes open. But um, the, the podcast that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, where England golf have obviously limited the number of general player scores elite golfers can put into uh, um, their records in order to enter some oversubscribed top competitions. That's certainly woken up some clubs, I think, um, about what they can do in terms of competitions. And you're right. I mean, obviously, you know, they can, a, a golf club has enormous power in this area. You know, they, they, they don't, they don't just have the right or the, or the ability to, you know, uh, specify the number of cards that you have to have. They can specify the type of cards. They can specify maximum or minimum handicaps. They can specify maximum handicap at point of entry and maximum handicap on the day. There are all kinds of different things um, golf clubs can do in order to ensure the integrity, not just of their opens, but their club competitions as well. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah, I agree. And I think that all of the logic you've just described applies to a club golfer yeah. or to uh, an independent golfer. Absolutely. So I think I think that gets us on to the sort of third thing. So the, the RNA's um, original intention with this scheme is that they want a handicap to be available to all golfers, right? That's yeah. that's what they want. Yeah. And they want to they want to decouple the handicap and therefore the tracking of rounds, the tracking of um, playing abilities, and the tracking of where people are playing. Uh, they want to decouple that from traditional club membership. Um, so I think that, and that is very much the direction of travel in golf as a whole, isn't it? Is that we're trying to move away from these kind of self-imposed um, segregations that we have, where we have different types of membership based on gender. We've got different types of golfer based on whether they're a handicap, uh, they're a club member or they're not a club member. Well, what we're trying to do is get the rhetoric to be more around we're all just golfers and we just happen to take our golf in different ways. Um, so I think that I think the intention of it actually is is really good. Um, as in, to me, if there's more people engaging with the sport more often in a way that suits them, I think that's got to be a positive. And I think I don't want to go down too many sidelines here, but this is the point we're trying to I would be trying to make. If I was, if I'd got a company that was called Golf Club Consultancy Inc., which I don't, then I would be trying to stress this point completely: is that the landscape in terms of how people live their lives and how people consume um, their leisure pursuits is changing dramatically. And I've kind of got a real life example of this in, at my own club, which is very traditional. So I, I need my golf club to be somewhere that I can drop in and out of. And I need, I need it to fit into my life rather than the other way around. I've got two young children. My the, my life's a bit haphazard. I don't know when I'm going to get time to go to the golf club when I don't. And on Wednesday, I happened to have an hour where I could take my kids to the club before they had a football match in the evening. Uh, and I'd gone to the office wearing jeans and a hoodie like I always do. And the kids had their football kit on. Um, and, to, and I wanted to go to the golf club, eat and have my kids hit some putts for half an hour and then go to football. But we couldn't do it because we didn't have the right clothes on. Um, so your options are you sort of turn up and you sort of feel a bit uncomfortable because you haven't got the right clothes on. You know you haven't got the right clothes on. And or or not go. And so in the end we went and ate round the corner. Um, and I think that, that that I'm not that isn't I'm not being critical of my golf club because it says probably says more about my own attitude to dress codes than anything else. 
but we we need as an industry to understand that pe- things change people how people are consuming things change and one size doesn't fit all and i think iGolf massively speaks to that so it's not saying we don't want people to be members of golf clubs anymore of course we do golf clubs are vibrant very important parts of the community people get huge benefits from them from spending time with their friends there etc etc but other people don't have time don't have um the disposable income to allow them to do that but that that doesn't make them illegitimate golfers that makes them golfers who consume golf in a different way and if there's a sort of education point here then i guess that's it really and I think one of the things that was largely ignored in the build-up to iGolf was, and it was stated often, it was just that people went, because uh, they, were, they were so kind of like uh, tunnel visioned on, on what their issues were with the scheme. There was the idea that iGolfers could provide a pathway into golf club membership. Now, there are facts that show it has. Um, so there have been, uh, there are currently 29,000 iGolfers within the scheme at the moment. Um, there have been 35,000 in total since it was brought in July uh, 2021, we're going to say, aren't we? Um, I asked England Golf how many of them had gone on to club membership, and it's more than 10%. Um, now, of the iGolf members um, that, have, that, that have paid their money for the scheme, I think it's only a maximum of about 4% of those who've come from golf clubs. So if you think about that, over 10% of iGolf members have gone on to golf club membership. Only 3 or 4% have left golf club membership um, to go into the iGolf scheme. Golf clubs are up overall, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I, so I I guess I wouldn't disagree with the numbers because I think I would challenge the thinking slightly because I think, first of all, the data set's far too small. Um and let's see what those numbers look like in a number of years and perhaps when there's a softening of the um, of the parameters around iGolf where you, you can't join as a lapsed golf club member for a certain amount of time. But I'm not sure that matters. I think that's what I would want to get across because I think there's a conflation of a golf facility failing because it's got fewer members. And I don't think those two things are the same point at all. I think it's difficult for a golf club to make an adjustment from being primarily a members facility with some green fee payers to be com- completely pay and play and somewhere where iGolfers can come and play constantly. But I do think that is the direction of travel. Um, but before we before we get into that, like, so we talked a little bit about what golf clubs are saying. Do we think that iGolfer has resonated with um, the golfer? Like as a golf club member, are you are you sort of um, speaking to your fellow club members and they're grumbling about the iGolf scheme? Are they aware of it? Are they saying they're thinking of doing it because it's cheaper or do you think it's landed with people in that way? With club members? No. Yeah. No, I, I think that um, I think that and I think clubs have completely settled down with it as well. Now, that might be because they're choosing not to get, engage with it in any way, shape or form. But if you consider the kind of pre-world handicap system furore over uh, over independent golfers and what we've seen since um since launch and obviously over the last sort of 15 or 16 months i mean the the, the two things are not comparable i think iGolf's settled in quite well into the landscape really um of its space um does it do should it be should it permeate more i mean i, I suppose that's up to the golf clubs that are dealing with it isn't it 
yeah, I was well. That's what I was going to say. Why? So why do you think it ha- hasn't landed with golf club members? Because it, like, well, it, they're not the, the audience. One... They're not the audience. Right. Essentially. But that is, so that that is a really interesting thing, then, isn't it? So if one of the original, if one of the original fears of the iGolf scheme was that we were going to see um, golfers leaving golf club memberships in the same number that Farage would have us believe that people were going to be joining these shores from. Uh, from the EU, then we need to um, you need to sort of stress test whether that's actually what been as what's been borne out, and it isn't because, as you rightly say, and it's a very neat way of putting it, those people are not the audience, um, and I think that's a really important point to make. My sort of anecdotal experiences of who hasn't hasn't joined iGolfer is I know um, several people who are lapsed members, as in long time lapsed, so perhaps people who became um, parents um, maybe a decade ago and gave up their golf club membership as a, re- as a result have engaged with iGolfer because they see it as a way of tracking their score. It's another reason to look at their phone. Um, and they're, they're sort of re-engaging with the game through it. And I think they've kind of re-established themselves as credibility as a golfer in their own mind because now when they speak to people like me and I say they say, oh, I'm a golfer, and I, my first question is obviously, what's your handicap? Because that's what you... you first question is they can answer the question because they've got yeah. one um so i think that that is that is really serving a purpose um so the the current number of i golfers is how many steve uh 29000 and that and where does that sit in terms of the targets um when they set out so I think they had a target after the first year of 25000 they obviously hit that i think their target um after year 5 I'm paraphrasing here. I'm sure I'll get an email if I'm wrong. I think their target after year five is 125,000. So looking for 25,000 a year, essentially. Okay. Um, so I guess the, I've got two questions with that, one of which um, you may or may not be able to answer. What's happening to the money? Uh, it will, I believe that any surplus from the scheme is going to go into some golf club projects. I did ask recently about what some of those were going to be. Um, and I believe that's going to be decided this year, I think. Um, but there, look, there are obviously some administration costs in running the scheme. There are people employed at England Golf uh, who are working on iGolf. Um, there's obviously marketing and, and, and things like that, the, the, the normal costs of running a business. And you, you've put me on the spot here, but I believe that any surplus is ploughed back into the game, as you'd expect from a not, well, not-for-profit body. Uh, and I sort of asked the question because I think it's that is that is worth stressing like and we work with um lots of governing bodies um and I think I think the golfer kind of loses sight of this not-for-profit point and they they sort of get perceived as being these sort of monolithic entities who are paying executives hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and they've got far too many staff and they've got business business flights around the world or whatever that is not the case with um, the governing bodies that we deal with um, at amateur level. Um, the team at Woodall for England Golf, which we know sort of, I think probably the best of the of the home unions, is not massive in comparison to the sort of scale of of what they run. Um, we know what the chief exec earns because the, the job's been advertised so many times in the last few years, and uh, it's a big job for that salary, is what I would say. Um, and they're not for profit, and that's a massively important thing for people to remember, isn't it? That the, if this scheme is successful, 
there is cash coming into golf, right, that golf has generated that demonstrably it wasn't generating for its, itself before. Jeremy was asked uh, back then um, what, what had been done in regards to the project, you know, in terms of the affiliation fee, the, the figure um, for membership, which hadn't at that point been um, decided. And he said um, he was asked about a target. And he said, you're right with regards to the target of a minimum of 25,000 within the first rolling 12 months after launch. The number of 300,000 is really an expenditure level that would only be advertising and salaries. As part of an overall figure, it would be close to three quarters of a million that we would look at as our overall costs. As you start to look to year five with that five million pound forecast, in fact, the total expenditure goes up to two million. But nevertheless, it's still a lot of money and we create a surplus of some three million yeah and i don't I, I, what i was trying to explain is the context of that three million um so england golf turnover about eight or nine million i think um which is a combination of a dwindling amount of money they get from sport england and affiliation fees that they collect from golf clubs so that is a significant chunk of turnover like somewhere between 40 and 30 percent i would say would boost england golf turnover by so that isn't that is not to be sniffed at and if that if that money, as it seems to be the case, is not coming from golf club members falling out of traditional schemes and it's actually golfers who are now more engaged with golf, then that's a huge, a huge boon for the scheme. Um, so I guess it's something, and I would say that I sort of personally feel like I've been on this journey. Like I say, I was talking to um, Chief Execs England Golf as much as five or six years ago about it. Um, and I've, I've been in and out of whether it's a good thing for golf or whether it's um, a bad thing for golf um, and it's, so it's interesting very interesting to sort of see it it land and then and develop in the way that it has um what's your sort of view on its impact on the future what where do you see iGolf for being in five years time how do you see that club membership as we know it now i mean i think it'll grow i think that um there, there's there's an awful number of areas of expansion for this scheme to get into. I think if you if you look at the uh, certainly when I talked to Richard Flint, who's England Golf's chief operating officer at the just after the year since it was launched um, last summer, um, the the, uh, the you know the the demographic of iGolfer is like overwhelmingly male. Um, so there is uh, definitely some um, hope for expansion with women and uh, and young girls. Um, and people getting into the game. I mean, like if you, if you think of iGolf as a pathway into golf club membership or a pathway into other areas of the sport, then definitely there's some opportunity, isn't there, in expanding the number of um, women and girls that are part of the scheme and then would hopefully get into um, golf club membership. I mean, I, I was a bit surprised when they first uh, unveiled the scheme that they're participation numbers were quite so high if you think about the number of people who are in golf club membership i think it's just it's nearly about 780,000 now i thought 125,000 after 5 years and 25,000 after the first year was pretty optimistic um but they hit the first year target they got 25,000 they've had 35,000 in the scheme altogether they've got 29,000 in there now there is a huge pool isn't there of um of, of people who are not members of golf clubs, but play golf regularly. The RNA statistics, the COVID statistics have seen, we've seen have, have shown that. And I think as, as people, I can't speak for everyone, but I think that 
when you get into something and when you like something when you love something there is this desire isn't there to get better at it and i think iGolf offers a nice bridge there because going into golf club membership is still a thing it's still a big thing for some people you know and and it, and it's still there's a uh, it's breaking down all the time but there's still this culture isn't there of, the, of it being some clubs being forbidding places or perhaps not massively welcoming even if that's not true the the kind of shadow is there um and i know you know from you know uh, having recently joined uh, a new golf club after many years another one and we've talked about my struggles on the podcast haven't we it's not an easy thing to do you know you need to build up into it you need to be persistent with it and i think that schemes like this that that essentially you know can take you from top golf and the range and mini golf and adventure golf and all of those kind of things you know to uh, I want to get out on the golf course, but I'm not ready to join a golf club. So I'm going to play iGolf to then, you know, get into perhaps golf club membership. There's a clear pathway, I think, there. And I think that I personally, I'm sure people will disagree with me, but I think iGolf is a tremendous thing. So, yeah, I think you touch on like so many things there. I think there's a couple of things that I would try and draw parallels with. So first of all, um, the the app gives the iGolfer the opportunity to track what they're doing from a golf perspective they can basically track their their progress track their scores so there's obviously lots and lots of apps that relate to um, running or cycling Strava being probably the most um, ubiquitous one Um, and that must have led to an increase in the number of casual runs being taken of people who think actually there's now there's more of a point in me going and doing this run because it's dead easy for me to track my pace it's dead easy for me to track my distance there is a community element to it where people will give you a pat on the back or kudos as it's referred to um when you go and do that and that 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 kind of all speaks to this idea of an online community which is perhaps where iGolf will end up or perhaps um iGolf is trying to tap into that the second thing i think that is which I've said before, but I am going to say it again because I think it's increasingly apparent, is what we're in need of is more divergence of facility. So we need golf clubs to be offering different people to different thi- different things to different people. Um, I think there's a there are some precedents. So we've talked before about how golf is taken in the US and the disproportionately low number of private clubs in comparison to pay and play clubs, which you know I think is the direction of travel here. Yeah. If you look, if you look at things like um, gyms in this country, so if you go back um, perhaps 15 years, the idea of being a member of a gym was effectively two options. You either had a very sort of luxury kind of David Lloyd uh, Holmes Place, as it was at the time, kind of country club kind of option, which was out of the reach of most people. So it'd be kind of something that you would view as being something for the more affluent, or you had the idea of going gym which was like spit and sawdust lots of free weights lots of people with muscles and vest tops quite an intimidating place to be and um, now we've got things like pure gym and myriad other big box venues which offer really low cost access to indoor exercise facilities with no commitment no joining fees no membership fees cancel when you want etc etc so much more flexible open to much more people available to many more household budgets um, and you've still got spit and sawdust and you've still got um, premium high-end swimming pools leisure club cafes crashes type facilities 
surely this is the direction of travel in golf, isn't it? That we end up with at one end, we end up with nine holers in Scotland with an honesty box, which we we have currently. We end up with very exclusive, very private clubs, probably some of which will offer a country club type experience as we have a small amount of now in this country, but an awful lot in the middle where people go along, take their golf there one week, but then they'll take their golf somewhere else another week. So I think the direction of iGolfer is either iGolf itself becomes effectively an online golf community, or it allows for people to essentially join clubs which are nomadic. So I think that in our area, in the future, we might not join Scarcroft, we might join the new inn, and we'll meet up in the new inn for beers, and sometimes we'll play at Scarcroft, but sometimes we'll go and play at Old Woodley, or sometimes we'll go and play at Moralton. And there's lots and lots of these kind of informal golf societies at the moment who are doing that infrequently. And I think our golfer might lead to the, the formalising of those things and you end up with lots and lots of independent clubs. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that scheme develops. I mean, I think um, one of the things that was definitely going to be offered, if not by iGolf, then certainly by uh, Open Play, which was the Scottish version, was essentially uh, competitions for independent golfers, which I'm not sure has quite happened yet, as we might have expected, but COVID's had a lot to do with that. Um, because we haven't been able to um we haven't been able to get together in the same way. So it'll be interesting to see um A how independent golfers um develop within the existing schemes and B whether more golf clubs um decide to get on the bandwagon and um and and not treat them as many are at the moment as outliers and that's still the case you know if 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 the example that i've seen recently when people are asked how do you deal with eye golfers as golf clubs is anything to go by then there's still a fair bit of work to do there um and and yet as you point out and as i pointed out earlier in the podcast the revenue opportunities for golf clubs who can effectively engage with eye golfers is not insignificant uh so I think, yeah, I don't think I've got loads I'll say. I'm, I'm hoping we've done that in quite a clear sort of step-by-step way. What is iGolf? Why is iGolf? Where is it at now? What does the future look like? Be like massively interested to hear what um, our listeners and readers think about the scheme, what they think about the threats it brings to golf clubs, what they think the opportunities are. Um, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating what should develop over the last seven or eight years, and it, the next seven or eight years will probably be even more interesting. Very much so. I am going for a pale ale. I'm about to spend several hours on my computer, so. <laughs> oh, right. Shouldn't have said that. Right. Thanks for listening. Uh, see you next week. Bye. Cheers, Tom.